Father, we, uh, we have come to behold your son that you've given us, that you sent to us. And Lord, we, as we approach this season, we know it's here where we most need to behold Jesus as he moves from the trial to the beatings, to the scourgings, to the mockings, to the spitting, to the suffering, and ultimately to the cross. We need to most behold him here, and yet it's hard to look. We want to look away at the truth revealed in the cross, not just about you, but about us. We want to look away, but we know we can't look away. Help us, Lord, fix our eyes on Jesus this season and to behold the one who was crucified for me, for me, in Christ's name, amen. Amen. Well, this morning we're beginning a series, a new series through the season of Lent called World on Trial. Uh, we talked Ash Wednesday, if you were here, about, about God giving human beings the special vocation of being stewards of life. That's what it says in Genesis 1. He gave us dominion as image bearers, as th- those who were made in the image of God. Our vocation was to be stewards of life, have dominion over all living things. Everything in it that has the breath of life have dominion, God said. But we will see where this dominion has led to uh, in the decisive point in human history. Humans being given dominion over life quickly turned into a power struggle to have dominion over one another. And this comes to the most decisive and defining moment in human history, revealing the truth about human nature in the trial in the, the judgment and in the execution of Jesus. And so we will be walking through each scene of the trial of Jesus through Lent, leading up to the crucifixion on Good Friday, and then, but only then, uh, of course, to Easter morning. But there is no resurrection without a cross, There is no Easter without a Good Friday. And to see and to appreciate Easter for what it is, resurrection for what it is, we have to see and appreciate the cross for what it is. Now, to understand the significance then of this trial, I want to help kind of orient you to the whole series. So we're going to take a moment to that end. And uh, and I I want you to see not only the significance of the trial, but why the trouble of going through all of this so that it could be written down for all posterity, for us, for all human history, uh, to, to become witness to this trial through the telling of this, this court document, essentially, we all become witnesses to the trial. And, and it, it is for us, therefore, As we read this trial, we become witnesses not simply to what Jesus did for us, but but become witnesses of what we did to Jesus. 
You see, the trial that was intended to expose Jesus' guilt, as all criminal trials are, turns out exposing our own and vindicating him. You see, the gospel was written as, uh, as the play in Shakespeare's Hamlet, the play called The Murder of Gonzago. So it's a play within a play. This is the ancient version of Inception, if you know that movie. Uh, I heard three millennials laugh. Awesome. Um, but in the play Hamlet, the, the, the character, uh, so in the play Hamlet, there's a character, Hamlet, and he writes a play to set a trap for an audience member. And, uh, and the, the goal of this trap was to reveal the true culprit in the actual murder of his father in the play, the late king, also named Hamlet, who happened to be the brother of the current king. And, and this late king was found dead in an orchard. Uh, upon his death then, his brother Claudius succeeded him, succeeded him as the, the one who sat on the throne. So Hamlet's uncle, King Claudius, spoiler by the way, is the one who murdered uh, Hamlet's father. And he did so so he could have the kingdom because he was next in line. So what he does is he invites the whole family he invites King Claudius, along with his noblemen and court officials and social elite, to the premiere of this play. And, and, and it will be played in, in King Claudius's sorry, own court. And so they are, they've gathered to watch this new murder mystery, the murder of Gonzago. And when it gets to the scene where the culprit was finally to be revealed, King Claudius sitting on the edge of his seat, suddenly realizes in shock and in horror that the person revealed in the play looks a lot like himself. The scene is in an orchard, and the murderer sneaks into the orchard while the king is sleeping, and he pours a few little drops into his ears, which is the very method and means by which Claudius had murdered his brother, and so become king. And he had just, here's the point, he had just, through the play, become witness to his own crime. And becoming a witness, he was overcome with guilt and abruptly exit the theater. This is referred to as Hamlet's mouth, mouse trap. And what you need to know is that it's a genre of biblical literature. Shakespeare got it from God's word. As when, for example, the prophet Nathan designed a story to tell King David about a great injustice that had happened in Israel to one of David's mighty men, no less, and under his reign. And the story elicits David's anger and wrath only to reveal at the conclusion that the story was, in fact, about David himself, about his great injustice against Uriah and Bathsheba, and the family he destroyed because of his abuse of power. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. He said, to, uh, he said to Nathan, this man deserves to die. And Nathan said to David, you are the man. So the prophet created this story and then held it up like a mirror. And through this story, David becomes witness to his own sin, to his own guilt. You see the pattern. You see, God designed this trial, designed human history to, to play out 
on the stage of, of real life. So this is not just a play. This is not just a story. This is human history. But to do so in a way that Hamlet's play does or Nathan's story was designed to do. He was intending, in a sense, to set a trap for us. Intended to expose the sin and guilt of the very judges and magistrates putting Jesus on trial uh, so that in the end, ironically, the trial does exactly what the trial is supposed to do. What is a trial supposed to do? It's, ex- it's supposed to expose the truth and reveal the guilty. And that's exactly what it does. But, but, but this, this trial exposes the guilt not just of the judges and magistrates. It just exposes the guilt of everyone who comes to read it, who comes to see it, who comes to witness it. If we will look intently enough and listen closely enough, we will see in this dynamic between Jesus and the people our own complicity with sin, with guilt, with a lust for power and self-preservation at all costs. God gave us his word as a mirror, as the book of James actually says. We are, when we read the word, it's like seeing in a mirror. So to not heed the word is to like to go walk away from a mirror as a man who walks away from a mirror and forgets what he looks like. The Bible is intended to expose not just the truth about God, but the truth about us as his image-bearing creatures and therefore also all the ways that we eclipse God's image in the way we live our lives and cast shadows in this world where we were meant to cast light and be a reflection of God. And so God gives us this, this moment in human history as, as, a, as a signpost, as a, as a beacon to tell us, to warn us just how great our capacity is for, for human depravity, for sinfulness and guilt, because he's trying to trap us in that guilt for one reason and only one. He wants to trap us in guilt so that he can free us in grace. But you cannot bypass the guilt en route to the grace. Jesus didn't just die for the sins of the world. He didn't just die for the sins of of the church. He didn't just die for, for the sins of Israel. He died for your sins and for mine. That's what God's word says. And, and therefore, Jesus takes every sin personally, whether we commit it against him or not in our eyes. He takes every sin personally at the cross because he forgives every sin personally at the cross. But there is only grace for guilt, and that's what we've come to, to uncover. So turn with me to Matthew 26, and this uh, will be our first scene in the trial our first scene in the trial, and today we will focus on the charges. So how did Jesus get crucified in the first place? Like what, was the, what were the, the, the charges brought, and, and what was the procedures that had to be followed, and why does that matter for us today? It does matter, in fact. So we're looking today at the charges, and we'll, we'll note the setting, the characters, and the plot, and that will just drive our morning. But I want to begin actually... Um, in verse uh, 56, so just, just at the end of the preceding 
uh, paragraph that we're really going to be jumping into. Give me a water, please. Thank you. Uh, but in, in verse 56, it says this. But all this had taken place, thanks. All this had taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. And then the disciples left him and fled. So at this point, Jesus has been arrested. He has been arrested and taken into the power of the religious authorities. And the religious authorities, which we'll get into, had some level of political power. Now, to understand political power, when you reduce it to its essence, what is political power? Political power is power over bodies. It is power over bodies. That's why we entrust political power with great caution. Because those who have the power, political power, have power over bodies. You see, the reason there needs to be some level of political power over bodies is because human bodies can run amok in this world. There is no other vehicle or vessel on earth that can channel evil into this world but the human body, the human mind, the human body, human action. Yes, of course, there are natural disasters. Yes, in the animal kingdom, it's survival of the fittest. But a lion, you know, chomping on a zebra's leg is not doing anything evil. He's just being a lion. We don't call him evil when he eats a zebra, do we? No. But human, human bodies and human minds can actually become a vehicle for evil. We, did, we don't just try to survive in, at the expense of our neighbors. Human bodies are capable of designing and creating and manufacturing crucifixes and lynching trees. This is an exclusively human invention. Human, human beings can organize and recruit Human beings have learned that if we can join together in a collective will, we have more power than just an individual will. And this is the great warning of the power of Babel, by the way. All people in one mind wanting to build a great tower in one name, the reason God warned against that from the very beginning is that that power can turn into a holocaust very quickly. And that's what political power reduces to, it reduces to this power to exercise power over others against their will. It's the power over human bodies. And that's what they have now in their possession, the body of Jesus. The body of Jesus. He has been taken into captivity. 57. Then those who seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders had gathered. And Peter was following him at a distance as far as the courtyard of the high priest. And going inside, he sat with the guards to see the end. The chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death, but they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. At last, two came forward and said, this man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it. In three days. And the high priest stood up and said, Have you no answer to make? 
What is it these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Now let me pause here for a moment and help you see the context and the dynamic at play in what the high priest and what the council is trying to accomplish. So, uh, to help you understand that, you have to understand something about the setting, the Sanhedrin. Now, the Sanhedrin referred to both a place and a people. Both a place and a people. So, the Sanhedrin referred to a place. The place, it was the palace of the high priest. Yes, the high priest had a palace. Should the high priest have had a palace? Probably not. But he had a pro- high uh, a palace, and the place of the Sanhedrin was in the courtyard of this palace. But the, the people, uh, it, it, it was just called a courtyard and, until and unless the 72 members of the Sanhedrin, what Matthew calls the council, gathered there. And who of whom did they consist? They consisted of the high priest together with chief priest, scribes, and the elders. That's what it says in 57. They are the ones who gathered. And in 59, it says the whole council were there seeking false testimony about Jesus and how they might put him to death. So it's kind of like the governing board of the church. The governing board doesn't exist as individual members, but when they come together and their powers unite, no, just kidding. When they come together, that's the governing body. Same for the Sanhedrin. Seventy-two all have to be together. They all have to be in agreement, and, and then they can make authoritative statements. Now, what exactly did they need from these false witnesses? So the trial's begun and false witnesses have come forward and they were seeking, it says, false witnesses. Well, what and they need, they need eyewitness testimony to put Jesus to death. So what is it they're looking for? Well, they're going to need to procure two charges. They're going to need two charges to get Jesus put to death. The first charge under God's law The Mosaic law, the Old Testament law, the second under Roman law, under Roman law. Now, remember, Jerusalem, this place where we're reading about, where Jesus came, it's under Roman rule. Everything's under Roman rule, basically, by this point in the first century. And that meant the Sanhedrin also. So, if they, yes, they are a governing authority, but they have limited authority, Only the Roman authorities have the power over life and death. As the Roman Empire expanded, you see, what they realized is that it would be expedient for them. As a a strategic way to expand the empire rapidly, what they would do is essentially uh, two things to ensure cultural cohesion, social stability, and peace throughout the empire. Because they didn't want revolutions. They didn't want revolts. They wanted, in some sense, to make their people happy like many governments want. And so what they had to do is, first of all, the Roman government set, wrote the script for, for embracing religious pluralism, religious tolerance. So long as no religion threatened a compromise its adherents' highest allegiance, which was to the Roman Empire, as long as people would remain more patriotic than they were religious, as long as people, hear me now, would remain more patriotic than they were religious, 
they could maintain stability throughout the empire. And so they wanted that stability. So what they did was, the second thing they did was they allowed them to maintain some local governance where they could settle civil disputes and, and enforce local laws so that, and, and these laws were of no concern to the Roman authorities uh, because they didn't really care about these little civil disputes. And so as the empire expanded, it incorporated these little governing structures like the Sanhedrin into its, into its governing structure so that they didn't have to go and establish new ones. Plus, it would also give an inside government so that the people, uh, the, the people in the region they were governing would have an inside person like the high priest who could win the favor of the people and keep the peace. You follow? Does everybody follow? Okay, you will, all right? If you jumped off the train, it's going to get much clearer now, so all right. However, uh, the, the Roman authorities, like I said, they, so they, they, they incorporated local governments, but here's what they did to ensure that they were still the, the top authority. They reserved the right to save life and to end life. They alone had the, the put, they put the limitation of death penalty on all local governments. Only Rome had the power over death. And the death penalty was a punishment restricted then to violations, not under Jewish law. <laughs> the Romans don't care if you, for example, blaspheme the name of Yahweh. So they need to find a charge under both Ro Jewish law and Roman law. You see, Caiaphas has to find a, 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 a law that Jesus has broken under God's law so that he can be convicted of a capital offense, right? And, and, and not only for the people's own conscience, but he needs to get, gain the crowd's favor and approval. He needs to get the crowds to believe that Jesus broke God's law as well because the crowds are going to play a very important role in getting Jesus crucified in a Roman court. But then second, he'll have to, as I said, go to a Roman court where he has to then prove that he's guilty of, of violating a Roman law. So, so you can see this legal process play out in, in two phases. Determining the, the capital offense under God's law, why under God's law Jesus should be put to death, and then determining, translating that into a capital offense under Roman law. Okay, so up to this point, in verse 59, it says the council had been seeking false testimonies from false witnesses, all of whom testified to Jesus' guilt under Jewish law, because they said that he was speaking against the temple, speaking against the temple. Why these charges? Because the temple was the place where God's presence dwelt. That's what they believed. And, and, and at, throughout the Old Testament, the temple was a place where God said, my name will dwell. It was associated with God's identity, associated with God's name. So to speak against the temple was to be guilty of blasphemy. Blasphemy. And that is a charge punishable by death under Jewish law. Whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him. The sojourner as well as the native, when he blasphemes the name, shall be put to death. Which is, by the way, side note, this is, how I th this is why I think David chose stones to slay Goliath. 
Because Goliath was the one who had been blaspheming the name of the God of Israel. And David just follows the law. He said, if no one else is going to do it, it's supposed to be the whole congregation. No one else will. I will. And he goes and he stones him. And that's how David, that was free. All right, it wasn't in my notes. <laughs> but but, but this, this, is what, this is what they are now charging Jesus with. Blasphemy. Blasphemy against Israel's God and Israel's temple, though, it's not going to cut it in a Roman court. They don't care. They don't care about the God you worship any more than the American government cares about the God you worship, as long as they have your loyalty and your vote. So Caiaphas, who is craftier than all of the other scribes, okay, he asks the question that cuts to the point. Under Roman law, he says this, are you the Christ, the Son of God? Now that sounds like, again, a question about blasphemy. But in the first century, understand this. The title Son of God was understood as a human title, not a divine title. Strangely, the title Son of Man was a divine title, not a human title. And it goes back to 2 Samuel 7 when God said, I will give, he said to David, I will give you a descendant and that descendant will come and it will establish the throne of Israel forever. And so they had in their, they didn't know that was literal, that God was going to literally send his son. They didn't know he had a son. <laughs> and so they believed that meant that God was going to, and then he said, by the way, um, I will be a father to him and he will be a son to me. And so they took that to mean this king is going to be sent and he's going to be a son of God in the sense that James and John were sons of thunder, as it says in the Gospels. Like, uh, it, it describes the fullness of a characteristic of a person. They were sons of thunder because they were violent, basically. And so Jesus, they believed, the Messiah would be the son of God in that sense. He would be the most like God thing you could get. And he would even come with some measure of power that looked like God. But they didn't actually believe he was going to be divine. And so when Caiaphas asked, are you the son of the living God, he's asking, are you the Messiah? Are you the Christ? Are you the king that was promised who would come? Why does that matter? Because if he is, then they have, then they have a charge that will get him very swiftly killed in a Roman court, a charge of revolution. Because if he is the Christ that they all expected, then he would be the one who would come and would would ultimately restore Israel's borders and, and drive out Roman occup occupation and, and begin this new reign of a dynasty that, that would not end until Jesus, oh, that, that would never end ultimately until the end, until judgment day. And judgment day wasn't supposed to happen for a long time. So now, okay, so do you understand? They've got the Blasphemy charge. They've got the Jewish people in their, in their corner. Now they are looking for this charge about treason. Are you going to admit that you're the Christ before the court? Now listen to how Jesus responds, okay? Because he gives them way more than they asked for. I mean, this is a perfect response for what they're looking for, okay? It says this, verse 64. Jesus said to him, so again, are you the Christ? Are you the Messiah? The son of, the, of God, Jesus said, you have said so, but I tell you. Which is a, a way of saying in that idiom, yes, I am. You have said so. But then he says, 
But I tell you, from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and he said, He has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You have heard this blasphemy. What's your judgment? What is your judgment? They answered, He deserves death. Just like David said, isn't it? About the man the prophet Nathan told him about. He deserves to die. He deserves death. Then they spit in his face and struck him, and some slapped him, saying, Prophesy to us, you Christ. Who is it that struck you? This is the word of God. Now, up to the moment Caiaphas asked that question concerning Jesus' identity, Jesus had heard accusation after accusation from witness after witness, and he remained silent, like a sheep before his shearers, silent. And it's important you see, though, that the charge that they ended up with, remember, they're looking for charges. That's the whole point of this kind of arraignment that's happening. They're looking for charges. The charges that they ended up with didn't come from false witnesses at all. They came from Jesus himself. It was his own testimony in court for which he was charged with both blasphemy and would be charged with revolution or treason when they go to appeal to Pilate, the Roman governor. They needed two charges and they had come up empty until Jesus opened his mouth and like I said, he gave them both. He gave them what they were asking for and more than they were asking for. Yes, I am the son of God, but more than that, he said, from this point forward, you will see the son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. You see, that's a prophecy that comes from Daniel 7. And whatever else can be said about it, in their mind, it referred to the end, last, final judgment. And this son of man coming with the clouds, it was a symbol of a theophany, the idea that God was coming in the form of a man, but this wasn't supposed to happen until the end of history at the final resurrection of the righteous. And Jesus is saying, I am who you say that I am, and infinitely more. I am the son of God, the promised son of David, the Messiah, but I am the son of man. The theophany has arrived and is looking you in the face. And you are witnesses of it. God has come to this world and this world has put God on trial. And you are, he's saying by implication to them and perhaps then also to us, you're, yes, I am he and you are about to condemn me, strip me, scourge me, crown me, mock me with spit and venom and drive four nails through my flesh and bones to shape my body into the sign of a cross. A sign to all would-be revolutionaries, a sign to all false messiahs, a sign to anyone who would come against political power. What happens to people who do such Things, a sign to all world that has been, whether you believe it or not, burned into human consciousness from that day forward and forevermore. Here we are, 2,000 years later, still talking about this court scene. 
It is warning us of the truth of human sinfulness, our capacity to compromise religious convictions for political power, our capacity like Judas to betray our Lord or like all the other disciples to desert him, warning us of our capacity for scapegoating and witch hunting, for hatred of other and labor camps of Holocaust. You see, what this first scene of the trial reveals is that the very charges brought against Jesus were the charges that they were themselves guilty of, and by implication, us as well. Now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him as they beat him. They also blindfolded him and kept asking him, prophesy, who is it that struck you? And this is what Luke points out. And they said many other things against him, doing what? Blaspheming him. The charge against the world (laughs) is the very charge that they charged against Jesus. He would be charged with blasphemy and that charge would be turned on its head and it would be directed at us. The trial of Jesus Christ demands a verdict from all the world. Here we are in the judgment seat. Is the cross an empty symbol left lingering in human memory or is it and is Jesus Christ the truth? That is the decision that we're all faced with. Because Jesus said he he died not just for their sins, which he did, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing, but he died for for our sins. Paul said that the gospel, he described the gospel as Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He didn't say just for the chief priests or the high priest's sins. He didn't, it's for our sins, it's for, for us. And if that's true, it means that, that, as I said in the beginning, that all, all that happens to Jesus up to this point, it happens for us, but also in a sense because of us. As the song says, it was my sin that held him there. It's, it's all of us. It's all of us. And, and, and it should be so. And this whole trial then becomes one great ironic sign that does exactly what it was intended to do. Jesus really is going to die for the whole world. Jews and Gentiles will unite to condemn, condemn him. They will put a sign over his head, truly, that says, Jesus Christ, King of the Jews, they said it as a mockery. There couldn't be anything truer. The one who was crowned with thorns, who was covered in a blood-stuck purple robe, who was scourged, who was beaten, who was spit on, who was crucified for us, he was the King of the Jews. And it was written in Latin and Greek and Aramaic so as to say, as an international signpost, welcome Matt to all the world to come to the cross where you will see your guilt, but more importantly... And more definitively and more finally, you will see God's grace. The grace of God is revealed in the revelation of your guilt and mine. So the church of Jesus Christ has to be the confessing community that goes first to tell the world the truth about our sin. And how how could we tell the world the truth about God's grace if if we don't tell them about the truth of our sin? 
and stop acting like we are a moral superiority over the world, as though we have some claim to justice over the world, as though there's no blood on our hands. We will either take up the basin with Jesus and enter that place of the lowest, washing the feet of the world in the true sense that was not intended to be a an allusion to the Super Bowl ad. I want to stay out of that. We will take up the basin with Jesus or we will take up the basin with Pilate who washed his hands of this man's blood at the end of this trial. It's one of one basin or the other. As I said, God has given us this world as a mirror or his word as a mirror to see what we look like, to show us what we look like and to, to see that, that we were made as stewards of life, to share dominion with one another for the good of this world. And, and, and we can therefore either see what God says when we look at the world or see what we, we see with our own eyes. Do you understand what I mean by that? To see what God says? It means when you look at the image on an ultrasound screen, You can either see what the world says that is, a lump of cells, or you can see what God says that is, the image of God, being knit together in its mother's womb. You can see, on the other hand, you can see as you look at an image, as I saw a few weeks ago, of a mother attempting to pass her baby over a wall erected between two very different nations with very different conditions. You can either see first a legal alien or you can see what God says, the image of God, the breath of life. Those who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. You can see the story that shapes how you have a vision for the world, how you see people and you see it within God's vision of the world, God's courtroom that encompasses the world, that those who are far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ and it's in his flesh that the dividing wall of hostility has been broken down so that those who are strangers and orphans can come together as citizens and siblings together in the household of God by the Holy Spirit. You can have that vision for the world or you can reduce it down to a sectarian vision that divides and stratifies the world with all kinds of artificial evil inventions that come from the mind of man and not from the will of God, not from the heart of God, not from the commands of God that he has from the very beginning commanded his people. So when we look at the trial of Jesus, the cross of Jesus, may we never walk away and forget what we look like. We, we, we get to walk away from God's word, from this trial, and we say, no one gets to define me but God. And what does God say about me? Beloved, I, I am a child of God, I am in the image of God, but I am guilty as sin. I am guilty of sin, guilty as sin, of sin. And, and yet, even those who blaspheme the Son, everyone who speaks a word Against the Son will be forgiven, but the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. You see, we can can be forgiven of blasphemy, but not if you resist the Holy Spirit your whole life and never confess that you need the grace of God because of your own guilt. 
May we never forget what God shows us about not just him but ourselves. We are those who are guilty of blasphemy. So with each message, I'm going to try to send you with a, a reflection, a word of reflection for each week during Lent. Because I can't look in the mirror for you. And you, you can't look in the mirror for me. And what do you look in the mirror for? You look in the mirror to see what you look like. And God gives us his word to show us just that. And so I, wanna, I want to offer to you a word this week. I want you to consider, how have I blasphemed the name of Jesus? What is blasphemy? Blasphemy is, is, is taking God's name in vain in a real sense. It's for all those who claim the name of God, which is every Christian. How do you become a Christian? Whosoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. All who take that name and confess Jesus as Lord and then don't live under the, his lordship, we mis, misrepresent the name of God. And our lives become blasphemous in that sense. But remember, as you, as you seek this in your heart and examine yourselves, you don't have to hide any of those sins, any of that stuff in your heart, that defensiveness in your heart, because you will be forgiven of that. That's the promise. And that means we can be as honest as we want to, as, as, as we could possibly be, because there is always grace. There is always grace in a world of guilty people like us. And so if, would you stand with me, and I'll call the, the worship team and prayer team to come forward, and I would just encourage you, maybe you've got something weighing on your heart or in your mind this morning. Maybe as you heard God's word read or as we were worshiping or during the sermon, you felt your heart burning. You felt God was maybe speaking to you. If that's you this morning, I encourage you in this time to, to offer up this moment. Whatever's going on in you, offer it up to God and say, your will be done. Your will be done. And if you need someone to pray for you, maybe you don't know exactly how to pray or what words to put your prayer in, or if you just need someone to pray for you because you don't have the faith or strength to pray for yourself, come forward and we have good people who will pray, who will pray with you. But as we enter into one more song of worship, I'll just pray this over you. Father, would you help us to lay down our defenses? Would you help us to, to, to see the mirror that you put before us Show us the ways we haven't loved as you've called us to love. Show us what it does to our children and to our spouses when we do that, when we don't do that. Show us how our sin and the shadows in our life eclipse them from seeing you. Show us the ways we misrepresent you, not so we can wallow in guilt and shame and hide, but so we can be honest. We can be the, the, the honest people, the most humble people on earth who are honest about our sins and show the world, to lead the world into God's grace as, as David says in Psalm 51, teach me my transgressions and I will teach sinners to turn to you. That's our prayer this morning. Help us to be the leaders to show the world the way into God's grace. Amen. As you go this week, Remember, it's not about fixing your eyes on your sin. 
It's about fixing your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising its shame for one reason, to release this blessing that David declared to the world in Psalm 22 that Paul repeats has been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. This blessing, go in this blessing, in this grace, blessed are those whose sins are forgiven. Blessed are those whose sins are forgiven. Go in the blessing of grace this week. Amen.